Hello and welcome to CSDS Asia Matters, the podcast where we look deeper into the big stories across the Asian region. I'm Andrew People. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has not only brought dreadful suffering to the Ukrainian people, as well as heavy losses for the Russian army, it has also upended many of the assumptions that have guided international relations, arguably since the fall of the Soviet Union. In this episode, we're going to examine the response in three of Asia's most prominent nations, Japan, India and Korea, and assess the implications for their respective foreign policies. Joining us to do so, we have first two familiar voices from the Centre for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance. Eva Peshova is the Senior Japan Fellow at CSDS, and Ramon Pachego Pardo holds the career chair at the Centre. Welcome back to you, Eva. Hi, Andrew. And also to you, Ramon. Hi, Andrew. Hello. And we also have with us Garima Mohan. Uh, Garima is a fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where she leads work on India. Thank you so much for joining us and hello to you, Garima. Very nice to be here. Well, thank you all for joining us. What I'd like to do is first come to each of you in turn to talk about the reaction to the war in the countries in which you specialize and then come back for a more general discussion. So Eva, if I can start with you and the response in Japan. Of course, Japan is a is a member of the G7. It's long held strategic ties to the US, but it's also spent several years, particularly under former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, trying to improve its relations with Russia, with whom it has still territorial disputes that have lingered since World War II. Eva, could you outline what the key points you've noted in Japan's reaction to Russia's invasion have been so far? Well, thank you for the question, Andrew. I think, first of all, we need to notice the uh, rather extraordinary speed and scale of the Japanese response. Japan was the first Indo-Pacific or Asian country to, to condemn very loudly the, uh, the Russian aggression and join the Western sanction. It also cut Russian banks from the SWIFT system. It sent financial, humanitarian and material support to, to Ukraine. And it even decided to accept Ukrainian refugees on its soil, which is uh, frankly very unusual for a country that has been reputed for its, its reluctance towards immigration. So in many ways, we talk of an um, awakening moment or a major turning point in Japanese politics and approach to security in general. Basically, it is as if Japan suddenly realized that war is a possibility, that some sort of military aggression can happen at any point in the region. In other words, if Russia can attack Ukraine, then, then China can try to seize Taiwan or the disputed Senkaku Diaoyu islands by force anytime, and that Japan needs to be ready. And so on the one hand, not only it needs to very quickly reaffirm its its attachment to the U.S. alliance and the Western liberal democratic camp in general and, and prove to be a worthy partner, but also on the domestic front, it questions very much its capacity to respond to crisis and the military readiness of its of its self-defense forces. Now, this is especially important as, as we know Japan is currently preparing to update its national security strategy, which will be released at the end of the year. So we're likely to see some major upgrades, uh, both in terms of spending and and capabilities. What I find also very important to note is the um, unprecedented level of public support. And, And in a way, you see that in Japan, but also in other Asian countries. In fact, there was a recent survey saying that 86% of the Japanese population support the government response, which is quite amazing. And you have certainly seen the, the footings of demonstrations in all major Japanese cities in the past few weeks. And that's very different from uh, what we saw, for instance, in 2014 after the annexation of Crimea, which went much more uh, unnoticed. 
Now, this could be due to the violent images that we see in media uh, of the war, partly. But also, in the Japanese case, it is the connection to the, the nuclear threat that it represents, which, as you can imagine, is an extremely sensitive topic in the country. What do you see as the likely impact on Japan's relations with Russia, as I referred to, those relations had been getting closer for a few years, and particularly those territorial disputes that Japan still has with Russia, the Kuril Islands to the north of Japan, where the status has been in question since the Second World War. Given that Russia has now invaded Ukraine, is there a fear in Japan that that sort of territorial dispute could be next on Russia's list? Absolutely. The reaction needs to be seen against the Japanese complex relationship with Russia in general. You mentioned the disputes called the Northern Territories in Japan and the Southern Kurils in Russia. They're currently controlled by Russia. And that's a point that has been preventing the two countries from signing a peace treaty after the Second World War. The reaction of Russia has been almost immediate. Russia actually withdrew from the peace treaty negotiations, to which Japan uh, loudly objected. But let's not forget that Japan is also dependent partly on, on Russian gas from Sahalin. So what is interesting in, in this strong reaction is that Japan realizes it comes with a cost. And in the case of Kurils, it almost seems that it's ready to cut the losses. Thank you, Ava. Turning to you, Garima, India has attracted quite a lot of criticism for its stance on the war, particularly in abstaining on key votes at the United Nations condemning the Russian action. Can you explain for us India's position on the war and why it appears at least to be seeking to stay neutral? Sure, Andrew. As you said in the beginning of the of the podcast, the invasion of Ukraine has upended international relations and the political calculations countries are making. And this is very clear also in the Indian case, even though it might not be obvious from the outside. India is very concerned and we have reasons to believe that Indian officials have taken a tough stand, including the prime minister, in private conversations with Russia. But it has maintained studied neutrality in its positions in public, as you mentioned. There are three reasons for that. First is that there were 20,000 Indian students stuck in Ukraine and they had to be evacuated and the Indian government had to negotiate safe passage with both Ukraine and Russia. This was also coming at a time of very crucial domestic elections in India. So the government could not afford to take any risks with this. Now that the students are out, I think uh, there are more options on the table, as it were, for India. Second is the military dependence that India has on Russia, particularly in terms of equipment, spare parts and technology. It's a very pressing concern for India right now because of tensions with China on India's border. And I see that not a lot of Western coverage has covered this. And also there is a hesitance uh, on part of the Indian government to share the extent of the conflict on the border. But this is, of course, playing a major role in India's calculations. What if Russia decides to, you know, not act on uh, the defense contract and stop supplies? Where would that leave India? And third is a slightly longer term calculation where Delhi wants to preserve whatever remnants of leverage it still has with Moscow so that the Russians don't reach the conclusion that their only global partner is China. 
Now, India is surrounded by China, Russia, and Pakistan and its neighborhood. And the relations between these three countries play an important role in India's overall calculus. It does not want to be surrounded by, say, three countries who are all hostile to India. I think this is the longer term implication. What a lot of Western observers are not seeing is the domestic debate in India changing, and it has changed as a result of this. A lot of the commentariat, experts and media have questioned, was it really necessary for India to abstain from procedural votes in the UN? Is it necessary to not call this for what it is, an invasion, and stop using both sides' language? And there has been a lot of criticism of the government on that question, but overall, people do understand why India is so cautious. It is leading to a rethink of India's Russia policy. India has already started diversifying who its key partners are. It's working more with the US and France on defense equipment. Even at the UN um, Security Council, where Russia used to be an important partner for India, vetoing resolutions around Kashmir, for example, now India has partners in the US and France. So there's a lot of debate in New Delhi. What does this partnership with Russia mean? How does it impact India's strategic autonomy? And a realization whether India likes it or not, Russia and China partnership is emerging. So there is a big rethink going on in New Delhi. And I I think India's position is still evolving. It's interesting. As as we record, it's just a few days after China's foreign minister Wang Yi has visited. Russian's foreign minister Lavrov is going to visit there as well. It seems like China and Russia are on a diplomatic offensive to get more support from India. Do you think that's going to work? Do you think India could get more drawn into the the Russian side? Conversely, of course, India is part of some of these uh, new groupings in Asia, such as the Quad, along with the US and Japan and Australia, that have been seen to be slightly more hostile to China. So it's a pretty interesting situation. Do you see that diplomatic offensive, first of all? Do you see that working? Yeah, India is in a difficult position. I mean, it is in a bind. It seems like an effort by both Russia and China to portray India as in their bloc. The Chinese visit was to make sure that India attends the next BRICS summit and the Russia-India-China trilateral happens. But in terms of optics, it is certainly something that India does not want. So I would encourage your listeners to look at the official statements issued by the Indian government after the Chinese visit, where they clearly state that the bonhomie that China is trying to present does not exist. India is very cautious. And till the time the Chinese-Indian border crisis is resolved, business as usual will not take place. And I'm sure after the visit of Lavrov as well, India would would issue its own statements, giving its own account of the partnership and the visits, because it certainly does not want to be grouped in this grouping or be associated in any way with President Putin's imperialist ambitions. And as you mentioned, India is also part of other groupings, uh, including the Quad. It has in recent times invested a lot of time, energy, and diplomatic resources in reinvigorating its partnerships with the West, with the United States, but also with Europe. And India is very keen to make sure that it can salvage these partnerships as well. It's a very tight rope for India to walk, but 
I see no way that India would just move over into the Russian camp. And this has been the core of India's foreign policy positions basically since the beginning, since the country gained independence. Of course, it's not always easy, right, to, to be non-aligned and not to take any positions and say that we, we are working for our own interests and nobody else's, as the Indian foreign minister says. But it's going to be increasingly difficult for, for India to maintain the current position that it has. Ramon, turning to you, the war in Ukraine has come at a time when South Korea has been pretty preoccupied with its own presidential election, which was narrowly won by the conservative Yoon Suk-yeol. What have we seen from Seoul in the response of the outgoing Moon administration, which of course will be in power until May? And how could that change when Yoon takes office, do you think? In the case of of Korea, the the response was unsurprising. So, so Korea condemned, or President Moon condemned the invasion within 24 hours, which came after the US, Japan, and Korea itself had issued a trilateral statement prior to the invasion, essentially warning Russia not to go ahead. And then Korea very quickly discussed that it was going to be joining uh, sanctions, mentioned that it was going to be joining sanctions imposed by the international community, especially by the US and, and the European Union and then went ahead with them. And I think the three main reasons why Korea decided to do this and why I think this will continue once June takes office in early May. The first reason is that if you look at the countries imposing sanctions on Russia, they are uh, what Korea would call like-minded partners. Uh, you see values becoming more important in Korean foreign policy in, in recent years to an extent that wasn't really the case, say, for example, a, a decade ago. So countries such as uh, the US, European countries, Australia, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, Taiwan as well. Korea was invited to attend the G7 last year, also the Summit for Democracy. So this has led the current president, President Moon, to take a more value-based foreign policy. It should also be said that in this case, the Korean public has been opposed to the invasion of Ukraine from the beginning. And uh, you have seen a strong condemnation coming from civil society groups, demonstrations being organized uh, in support of Ukraine, fundraising among the Korean people. So, so, so in a sense, there was this push uh, coming from in civil society for Korea to do more. And, and, and as you mentioned, the invasion came during the, the campaign, during the campaign to elect the new president. And Jun Sok-yeol, the president-elect, also came very quickly in condemnation of the invasion. There's a second reason which I think matters as well for Korean foreign policy. President Moon made very clear to the Chebol, such as uh, Samsung, LG, that have very strong economic interests in Russia, that they were going to suffer. So, so Russia is the, is, is the 12th largest trading partner for Korea. And this is not only about oil and gas from Russia going to Korea, it's actually much more about Korean Chebol and the activities that they have in the Russian market, uh, factories, uh, for example, the sale of cars, uh, mobile phones, etc., etc. This is interesting, the change in thinking among many Korean policymakers, both liberals and conservatives, that uh, sometimes Korea will have to suffer due to its foreign policy decisions. And I think there was a a third important factor, which are the implications for for Asia itself. The fact that Russia has been willing to invade Ukraine, but that China has taken a tougher stance, for example, with artificial island building in the South China Sea. This has been well noted in Korea. There has also been a discussion, of course, about what if North Korea decided to, to strike on South Korea. Again, uh, I should say this has not been a mainstream discussion, but there have been pundits and experts who have been talking about how uh, the international community came to the rescue of South Korea in 1950. 
and could come to the rescue of South Korea again if there is a, a new invasion by, by North Korea, as unlikely as uh, this may be. And there's one last point that I would like to mention that Korea has tried to court Russia when it came to, for example, support with his uh, approach towards North Korea. But Korea has also had problems uh, with Russia. There have been Russian cyber attacks on South Korean companies, South Korean government entities, including, for example, on the day of the inauguration of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games in 2018. So there have been some tensions uh, with Russia in the past as well. And I think this helps also to tilt the balance towards uh, Korea joining the sanctions against Russia and the international condemnation. This will continue under under Yoon. I, I, I don't see much change. Fascinating. Thank you, Ramon. I wanted to stay with that point you made about the implications of what's happened in Ukraine, what lessons Asian countries are learning for its own regional security. The West's response to the Ukraine crisis has been pretty strong in terms of economic sanctions, and they've offered some military support, but it's stopped well short of direct military intervention. How are the countries we're talking about today reading this in terms of their own region's security? Eva, could I start with you on that, please? On the one hand, I think most regional countries understand the the Western calibrated response. So there's not so much criticism there. But on the other, of course, the one issue that is on everyone's mind, and it has been already suggested several times here, is, is Taiwan. So the question of an effective Western deterrence in the region has never been uh, more acute. Now, there is much you know, contingency planning as we speak and, and since the beginning of the crisis going on in the region and in Taiwan itself, which um, is carefully watching the situation and, and, and learning lessons. But we'll see how, how that goes. For Japan, the question of Taiwan is immediately related to the Senkaku Diaoyu, and it's also related to an extent also to the South China Sea and to the Parasol Islands. So, of course, it doesn't even stop at Taiwan. But let's face it, the expectations of the kind of Western military response in the case of, uh, of the Taiwan contingencies have always been questioned, have always been rather, rather moderate. It's been something that has been discussed for, for decades now almost, and there are not very bright or, or clear expectations that the West will intervene militarily in that case. So I guess Taiwan understands that, Japan understands that, most of the regional countries do. So in part of the contingency planning going on, that is also what, what Taiwan will be preparing for, um, basically building up its own domestic uh, capabilities and trying to um, defend itself better, knowing that there might not be necessarily a direct military response or support from the West. And Eva, do you think that in Japan, this will shape the ongoing debate, the debate that's been going on for years about the extent to which Japan needs to step up in terms of defending itself? And even do you think it could restart the debate about the nuclear deterrent? Because obviously, the war in Ukraine has raised that spectre, unfortunately, with Russia talking about the use of nuclear weapons. Absolutely. It's related. Actually, we've seen uh, something about four days after the beginning of the aggression. We have heard the former Prime Minister Abe mentioning that maybe we should discuss the possibility of nuclear sharing with the United States, which frankly was a completely taboo topic for, for the longest time. Now, I'm not thinking that it will become a reality, but just the fact that we are even discussing the topic is already a great leap forward. 
And in general terms, uh, absolutely, as I said, it is and will be a turning point for, for Japan's domestic capabilities, defense and security capabilities. So we are certainly going to see an upgrade, definitely an increase in spending and, and an upgrade of defense capabilities in the months and years to come in Japan. Garima, many commentators in the West have argued that Russia's invasion is accelerating this big global split between democratic nations on the one hand, led by the US, and autocracies such as as Russia and China. And, And President Biden has talked about that as well as one of his signature foreign policies. What's the perspective from India on that? Obviously, the world's largest democracy. But again, as you've explained, obviously in this difficult position diplomatically as to how to present itself in this crisis. Does India feel like this is one of those pivotal moments where, you know, the world is is splitting and that's that's adding to the pressures on the country? That's an interesting question, Andrew. I think, first of all, this, the use of language of ideology and values, democracies versus authoritarian countries, does not go down very well in India or indeed in many other countries in Asia. When we talk of, you know, everybody's pivoting to the Indo-Pacific, the Europeans are, the Americans are, countries in the Indo-Pacific are not very comfortable with this categorization because a lot of countries are, you know, not perfect democracies. They're facing challenges. Um, Domestic politics is messy. And I don't think this categorization is very popular. So the fact that after this war on Ukraine, if if we are to use this categorization, it would be difficult, not just for India, but also for a number of other partners in Asia. That's one point. And if I can come to, you know, the question that you had asked Eva earlier about what lessons are countries in Asia drawing for India, this is quite a crucial moment because it is also looking at how the world would react when inevitably conflict reheats up on the India-China border in the Himalayas. So I think for that, India is really looking at what would be the reaction of the rest of the world. In the last time the conflict heated up, the US was, of course, a key partner for India in condemning it in public, as well as, you know, helping in other ways behind the scenes, including intelligence sharing. And India has been trying to build stronger partnerships with the Europeans, with other countries, in order to somehow create a coalition to check China's assertiveness. This is a worry among Indian commentators and analysts now, that if, you know, a conflict was to come up between India and China, again, who would be the countries that stand up for India, given India's neutrality in the current conflict? So... That, I think, is a is a bigger question that India has on its mind, how to salvage its relations with partners in the West and how to make sure that they see India as a reliable partner so that when India needs them, they would be there as well. And for the time being, it is, at least in officially, it is business as usual between Europe and India and the US and India, but it is putting India in, in again, as I said, that seems to be the theme of my comments for this podcast, India is in a difficult position. And do you think as well there's a fear in India that because of the conflict in Ukraine, the US and the European Union's attention is going to be focused back on Europe in the future. I mean, obviously, we've seen recently both the US and the EU 
in theory at least, turning more of their attention towards the Indo-Pacific and towards Asia and coming up with big strategies for what they're going to do there and so on. Do you think there's a worry that that's all going to go out of the window again for at least a couple of years as the US and the EU get distracted again by what's going on in their own backyard? Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. And there has been a lot said about focusing on the Indo-Pacific theatre versus in Europe. And what does that mean? Of course, India understands that in the short term, energies will be preoccupied and refocused on Europe. But in the long term, if as a result of this crisis, we see the emergence of a stronger, more geopolitical Europe, that is, of course, in India's interest, because then it can consider Europe as a valuable partner in the Indo-Pacific as well. Now, the changes that we've seen, for example, in Germany, the debate on the, you know, the Seitenwende speech and, and the debate on Germany taking a more proactive role in foreign policy, the fact that the EU considered delivering military equipment you know, these remarkable changes that we've seen in Europe, if they are sustained and built upon. And the end result is a more geopolitical Europe that is engaged with its neighborhood, but also with the rest of the world. In the long term, that is a good for India. You know, that would mean that it's a net positive. So the debate in India, I think, is slightly different from other US alliance partners. Perhaps um, they would be a bit more worried, but India is rather looking at the longer term picture. Ramon, I wondered what your perspective on that as well, or at least what the perspective is from Korea. Is there a concern that the West, and in particular the US's attention, will be will be drawn away from the region now? This seems a particularly pertinent point, given that We've seen in recent weeks Kim Jong-un in North Korea stepping up missile tests and testing intercontinental ballistic missiles, potentially. And yet that sort of thing hasn't been top of the news agenda, at least in the West, because people have been focusing on Ukraine. There is an understanding that obviously the invasion of Ukraine merits the attention of the international community as, as, as a top issue for weeks and, and even months to come. But, but I think the, the U.S. has clearly sent messages to, to the Moon administration, but also to the incoming UN administration that Korean Peninsula issues, Northeast Asia and Asian matters more generally are going to continue to be top of the agenda. There is this realization in Korea now that Asian issues are closely linked to issues happening elsewhere. It's not that this line of thought was not there yet in South Korean thinking beforehand, but I think this has become very clear from the perspective of Korean policymakers, but also the perspective of Korean uh, experts dealing with foreign policy issues. There is this uh, discussion now about how the two uh, scenarios, right, the Indo-Pacific scenario and the European scenario are closely linked to each other, which, if anything, probably is even going to draw more attention from Europe to the Indo-Pacific for years to come. And certainly once the worst of the Ukraine uh, crisis is uh, hopefully uh, over. So uh, I think that's where the discussion has gone. It is true that if you look at the recent ICBM test uh, that North Korea conducted, it was very interesting. There was this report that it wasn't top news uh, in the US by any stretch of the imagination. It wasn't front page news in any uh, US media at all. And uh, the reaction from the Biden administration has been fairly timid, calling for a discussion in the UN Security Council that is going to go nowhere because of China and and Russia, of course. Some sanctions, uh, some extra sanctions will be imposed on on, on North Korea, but there's not going to be any fundamental change in in the relationship between North Korea and the US as a result of this. And uh, interestingly enough, this is seen as reassuring in the case of Korea, that the US is not going to give up 
on North Korea because it is conducting missile tests, it is launching its verbal threats, of course, on the U.S., international community, the, the incoming President uh, Yoon suk yeol as well. The U.S. is going to continue to be engaged on North Korean issues. And, and there is another aspect here, which is the, the Taiwan issue that we have mentioned several times today, but that is crucial for to understand South Korean position as well and why it is not really concerned that the invasion of Ukraine is going to draw attention away from the Indo-Pacific, right? Because there's this understanding in, in Korea that if anything happens in Taiwan, obviously this is going to have a spillover effect on the Korean Peninsula. In the past, there has been this discussion between North Korea and China that we know about, right? That North Korea is saying, well, if China launches an invasion of Taiwan, then North Korea could decide to strike South Korea and there would be two, two fronts at the same time, right? And, and this would weaken the position of, of the U.S. And, and other countries in the region. So this actually, uh, from a South Korean perspective, means that the invasion of Ukraine, potential actions that China might take in Taiwan, uh, would certainly draw more attention to the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia more generally. Uh, and there's one final point that I would like to point out because there has been that feature in the in the discussion in, in, in South Korea. The fact that now we have this multilateral alliance that spans uh, East and West, to put it in, in very blunt terms, that is part of these moves that the U.S. has made to bring together allies from different parts of the world. So there has been this talk in U.S. Congress, for example, about nine-member intelligence uh, sharing pact, right, with the Five Eyes, Korea, Japan, India and uh, Germany. There has been this discussion about Korea potentially cooperating more closely with, with the Quad. The Biden administration has clearly been pressing for more trilateral cooperation between Korea, Japan and the U.S. And we see, for example, President-elect uh, Yoon already holding discussions with the U.S., uh, Japan or India, for example, about what his foreign policy uh, is going to be. So there is this view that actually the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is actually going to create a stronger links between certain Asian countries and Europe and the U.S. itself, plus, as I said, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand too. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of coverage, a lot of discussion of China's reaction to the crisis, and in particular, its sort of entente, I think we can call it, with Russia. Obviously, I don't want to ask you all directly about what you think about what China is thinking, but what I did want to ask is how the response of China is being seen in the capitals of the countries that, that you look at, how people are reading what China will be thinking? Will it see China as being emboldened by Russia's action or will it see China as potentially having to think twice now about taking more aggressive action, say in Taiwan itself, because of the obvious difficulties of carrying out an invasion of this sort? Karima, could I start with you on that? How is New Delhi reading what Beijing has been doing in the wake of Russia's invasion? So this is very worrying for, for India, not so much for the Taiwan scenario, but for India's own neighborhood. And as I mentioned in the beginning of my remarks, a long-term policy goal for India is to make sure that Russia does not move closer to China and does not think that China is its only reliable partner in the region, because a Russia-China nexus is very worrying for India, because it also includes a third partner, Pakistan. Let's not forget the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan visited Russia just as the invasion started. And since then, he has been saying that the country is very close to Moscow. And this is basically, you know, a really, really worrying scenario for India. 
So seeing China-Russia partnership emerge stronger, even though it isn't quite clear where China stands in terms of, you know, supporting the invasion and it has abstained from certain UN resolutions voted against certain others. But the development overall is not something that India wants. But there's also a realization among policymakers in New Delhi that perhaps this is inevitable. And India quickly needs to go back to the drawing board and reassess its partnerships with both Russia and China. Eva, your thoughts on that? How is Japan seeing Beijing and what Beijing has been doing both before and after Russia's invasion? I think what's really important or interesting to note on the Japanese side is the almost 180 degrees turn in its approach to uh, to this relationship, Russia, Russia-China. While in the past, it's been believed that basically building a positive engagement with Russia is precisely needed uh, because the more isolated it will be, the, the more likely it will actually get closer to China, right? And, and now we see the complete opposite. We see that we need to be tougher and tough on Russia precisely to create a precedent uh, for China, to show that we can be uh, strong on China. So I think that that's one point that is that is important to note. And the second, of course, is the question of what China will do, because that's uh, still not very clear. It's been closely watched. It's been closely related, of course. But the Chinese response now is pretty much on everyone's mind. And we could see it also um, from the reports of the extraordinary NATO summit in Brussels, Apparently, China was the actor that was mentioned by all of the all of the parties uh, involved, and now it's been solicited to play a constructive role. So we are appealing to this potential role of China to be a game changer, trying to seduce in a way uh, China to play a positive role in solving the crisis. Uh, on the one hand, on the other hand. Of course, warning it that if it provides a material support to to Russia, it would face secondary sanctions. But so far, we still don't know exactly uh, what the Chinese position will be. Overall, Japan has has very much chosen its camp. It is 100% aligned with the Western position, uh, no matter what. Ramon, do you see a recalibration in Seoul of the probabilities here, the probabilities of China acting not just in, in Taiwan, but in the South China Sea more broadly and in other territorial disputes that it has? There is in the sense that one of the reasons why Korea was uh, adamant in joining the, the sanctions, plus the condemnation of China, but especially the, the sanctions, was what would happen if there is some sort of confrontation with China, as we have discussed extensively over, over Taiwan, or even over the South China Sea. And there is a similar decision about posing sanctions on China. And from a Korean perspective, Korea is not a, a minor anymore. That's the perspective that many Korean policymakers uh, have, and this is clu- includes economics. So, so, of course, we all know that in 2016, Korea was on the receiving end of, of sanctions from China after it decided to, to deploy the TAD anti-missile uh, system. But China is also dependent on some high-tech goods coming from Korea, semiconductors, electric batteries, green ships, uh, for example, that, that China is starting to buy from Korea as well. And the thinking in Seoul was, well, if there is a scenario in which we have to confront China because of its aggression somewhere in the region, then Korea should be uh, joining the sanctions. Again, Korea will have to take the economic hit, but so, so, so be it, right? And in a sense, there is this uh, messaging not only towards Russia, obviously, uh, which is quite direct, but also implicitly towards towards China, that if we come down to a similar situation in the future, well, Korea will have to will will be siding with with uh, 
US, Europe and other Asian countries. And, and the second point of discussion in Korea has been about this potential alliance between China, Russia and North Korea. Of course, they have been aligned in the UN Security Council for, for a long period of time, of course, and China and Russia have been very supportive of, of North Korea, especially over the past two, three years. Uh, right when it comes to calling, for example, to sanctions re sanctions relief on Pyongyang, there's this discussion, what if this becomes more formalized uh, and we see China, Russia and North Korea having a stronger relations in a more formal way, for example, launching coordinated cyber attacks on South Korea or some other country, right, that is aligned with, with Korea or on Korean companies as well, not only the, the, the government. So this discussion is taking place in South Korea. And very interestingly, we saw Yoon, the president-elect, having a phone conversation with Xi Jinping a couple of days ago, which is a first in, in Korean history, actually, that a Chinese president decides to talk to a president-elect before the president-elect actually takes office. And during this call, from what we know, there was a discussion about Ukraine. Of course, it wasn't the main topic of discussion. It was much more about uh, economic relations, North Korea. But there was a discussion about Ukraine as well as part of this call. And that is uh, quite interesting that you see a South Korean president-elect, so someone who is not president yet, actually uh, talking to the Chinese president about South Korea's position on Ukraine. This would have been, I think, well, really a few years ago. So this is seen in Korea as part of the outcome of this crisis, right? How to send a message to China that any actions that it may take over Taiwan or any other issue, territorial issue in the Asian continent or the waters of the Indo-Pacific would actually have an effect on South Korea-China relations. Well, thank you, Ramon, for that absolutely fascinating insight. And thank you to all three of you for your insights as well. I think we've got a sense of some of the similarities in the reaction in major Asian countries and some of the different perspectives, though, that are coming through. It really is upending international relations and, and causing governments in, in all of these big countries to rethink where they stand and where the future may be headed. So thank you to all three of you for that uh, excellent discussion. Thank you also to all of you, of course, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. You can find more details on the CSDS website of the podcast, including transcripts of all the episodes that we do. We're on LinkedIn as well. Thank you to Rebecca Bailey, of course, for producing this episode. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange for the music for CSDS Asia Matters. And again, thank you to all of you for listening and I hope you'll you'll listen again in future. Thank you so much and goodbye.